Hey folks, this is Mark Devine from the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you being here, and I do not take it lightly, uh, so we're not going to waste your time. Before I introduce my guests, please refer this to other people, send it on, and or, or both, go rate it at iTunes. It's very helpful uh, to get those ratings so other people can find the podcast. My guest today is actually a really good friend who was a college fraternity friend of mine. Um, he, we've known each other now for, geez, 40 some odd years. And uh, we started our careers together. I was at Cooper's and Library and he was at Arthur Young. And guess what? He stayed at that company for 35 years. You're gonna find out more about that. Carmine DeCibio, Chief Executive Officer of the Global Fortune 100 company, I think actually. EY, formerly Ernst & Young. Super stoked to have you here, Carmen. Booyah. What I want people to know who are listening to this is that like, I have absolutely loved kind of watching your career unfold. Most people don't know this or wouldn't know this, but um, that you and I started our career together in the exact same program where you got hired by Ernst & Winnie, right? Was, that, was it Ernst & Young? No, Arthur time? Young. Arthur Young. Oh, Arthur, Arthur Young. Young. That's right. Arthur Young. I got hired by Coopers and Librand, and we went to NYU together, right, in the, what they called the MS in Accounting Program. Pretty silly name, but um, that's what they called it. That's and correct. I remember thinking back then, okay, so their stated purpose with that was, we're going to go hire some liberal arts graduates. So they had graduates like you and I from Colgate and a couple others. They had people from uh, Williams, Yale, Harvard, you know, all the kind of Northeastern institutions. But none of us had accounting backgrounds. Like we didn't, I don't even think we had an accounting class at Colgate, did we? I don't, I never took one. Yeah, no, we did. There was one little class that most people took as seniors. It's still there today. Is it? Okay, well, Uh, I missed that. Yeah, except when we had it, it was kind of an easy class. Now these kids there, now it's a hard class for these kids. Is it? Oh, funny. Yeah, at least that's what they say. Well, I was an Um, econ major. You were were a chemistry major, so it made perfect sense for you to go to an accounting, right? And... (laughs) And the stated purpose, back to what I was going, is um, we're going to, this is Arthur Young or Cooper's thing. We're going to go recruit from these liberal arts schools, and then we'll teach them accounting by sending them in, you know, to NYU Business School, and, and then they pass the CPA exam, hopefully, which, by the way, was torturous for me. And then um, over time, they'll make a more well-rounded leader, and maybe someday they'll run the company. And I'm thinking, no, most people are just doing it for the creds. And then they're going to blast off into investment banking or trading or whatever. Navy SEAL. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But no, you proved the model, right? You proved the model. (laughs) Yeah, I might be the only one that proved the model, which is the problem with the model. But (laughs) Right, the problem with the model. So let's let's talk about some of your influences. Because you're a unique person. Like you've had one job. Right. But you've had hundreds of jobs job. within that one job. But still, you've been with one company for what, like 30 some odd years. That's impressive. What, 35. 35 years. So I'm just curious about that. Like how, how did you get the leadership experience and what were some of the like the really um, pivotal moments in your career, both early and mid and maybe later that allowed you to get, you had the confidence to do what you're doing right now? Because I know you've always had the character, and I want to talk about character of a leader a little bit later, but that's something I saw in you early on when you were leading uh, the fraternity, right? I mean, you made great decisions, like let's not cut out 40 kegs a week. we got to have our beer, right? So good call. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. <laughs> what I was don't some, know. Maybe it was. <laughs> right. We'll, we'll, we'll leave that one aside. What were some of those uh, leadership challenges and, and highs and low points that really helped shape your, your ability to lead a global fortune 500 company. Yeah. So, so Mark, um, I mean, you know, obviously early on and you know, this, when we started, we, we really had no idea what we were getting ourselves into, especially since we were coming from a liberal arts school right. and going into these at the time, big eight accounting firms. And I think there was actually one bank doing the program too. We didn't, you know, at least I didn't have a real clue in terms of what I was getting into. All I knew was I wanted to get into the business world. Um, and, uh, and this was a good way to learn, uh, you know, learn a business, but also go to grad school. And right. I think that was everyone's mentality. 
So um, early on, I would say, besides getting the credentials, which was the CPA and an MBA, um, I, I, you know, I think as you know, I really wanted to learn more about financial services. Mm -hmm. So to me, I really wanted to focus on learning how financial services works, how investment banks work, how broker dealers work. And that was kind of the thing that, um, you know, that, that I learned. And, and the other piece I would say is early on, at least for me, I was focused on also, you know, learning a real skill. And mm -hmm. obviously the schooling helped on that at NYU, um, but also the work we were doing, um, you know, helped in terms of how things fit together. And I was able I don't remember which clients you were on at Cooper's, but I was able to be on some big clients where I actually got to learn some products in financial services. Mm -hmm. But then I was also on smaller clients where I got to learn more of the, you know, the financial statements overall and footnotes mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. So at that time, learning some of the basics and the basics of business and financial statements and so forth was the driver. You know, right. we didn't have that kind of technical training in, in, you know, in undergrad right. uh, when we were at Colgate, because as you said, you know, we, we, we were at a liberal arts school, which I do believe in liberal arts education. I do believe it helps later on in your career for sure. But the early piece was really getting more technical training, I would mm -hmm. say. And, um, and, you know, as you know, and, and you went on to be a Navy SEAL, but, but a lot of the other people went on to go into investment banking, as you said, and all that, because once you had the credentials, you know, many people got paid a lot more money. That's right. And so, you know, right. if you remember people were leaving for, and this, I tell kids this today, you know, people were leaving for double, triple, quadruple their compensation. Right. Not, you know, 10% more or 20% right. more. Yeah. You know, now kids are leaving for like 15% more time. Like, you know, that's not going to make a difference in your life in the long term. Right. You know, but back then, did you, uh, did you Street, face one of those inflection points where someone came and offered you 2x or 3x your salary? And, yeah. And what was going through your mind then? Like, why did you decide to stay the course? Yeah, so I faced that a few times. Um, I guess three times uh, where I was really thinking of leaving, where I had job offers. Um, and one was uh, before I made partners. So it would have been around 1990. 394, um, I was offered a job um, at one of the big investment banks. It was uh, yeah, it was four times my compensation. Mm -hmm. And at the wow. time I was a, a brand new uh, senior manager. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, um, and I was, I guess with, at the time, uh, EY, because we became EY uh, after Arthur Young. I guess I was with the firm for about eight or nine years. Um, and I was offered a lot more money. It was in, at an investment bank. Um, and I was pretty much, I told you know, all the partners that I worked for that I was leaving. And then one partner um, who had left, actually, Mark, who had left, and she uh, left to become the CFO of Payne Weber at the mm -hmm. time. That was one of her my name clients, was, by the way. <laughs> her name was Regina Dolan, and okay. she... Uh, she actually, rest her soul, she actually just passed away a few months ago. Um, and she actually had left. And she, when she heard that I was leaving, she actually called me and wanted me to go to dinner with her. And when I went to dinner with her, she basically convinced me to not take the job. Interesting. Um, she thought uh, I'd be crazy to take this job. And, you know, of course, I would say, but you, you left. And she's like, yeah, I left as a partner. And I left because it was the one role she worked on Payne Weber for 17 years and wow. she was offered the CFO job at Payne Weber. At that time, there were no conflicts. You could do that. Right. So she's like, I, you know, I left for the one job that I thought would be the great job. Mm -hmm. You're leaving for a job that I'm not saying it's a bad job, but it's not the equivalent. Mm -hmm. And why wouldn't you stay there to make partner? And anyway, so she convinced me out of it and, mm -hmm. uh, and I stayed. Mm -hmm. And so that was a, certainly an inflection point. Um, and I really owe it to her. Uh, mm -hmm. She she really made a difference, at least in my own mind, um, as well. Yeah, I mean, I think this is certainly more true today than it was probably when we were in our early career. That that there's a lot more dialogue and awareness that if you just follow money, it doesn't you know often lead to the you know the results that we're looking for in life, which is going to be more contentment and peace of mind, um, as well as kind of like really true achievement, which is through impact, not 
just lining your pockets or your bank account or having a big boat. Um, and so I'm curious, is, did, that, did that moment really help you to kind of cement this idea that you have a, more of a purpose around you know, staying in the industry and creating more of a service mindset around what we were doing as opposed to just thinking, well, that wasn't the right job. Maybe I'll wait for the next job that, you know, is the dream job that pays four times or six times or 10 times. Yeah, it did because once I did not take that job, what it did do is it, it made me say, you know what? Um, I really want to stay here and make partner at EY. Right. I was told that I had a chance to do that. And mm -hmm. so, so then that ba basically uh, made me stay. I made partner, you know, a couple of years later. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and so that was, you know, that was, um, you know, certainly something that I thought about and it really got me off more on the tra trajectory of, of, uh, of staying, um, you know, and then, you know, there was another time in the early two thousands that I also, you know, was thinking of leaving and, and it was really around the startup. Mm -hmm. Um, it was a startup. It was to be the CFO of the startup and, um, it was part of the dot com kind of boom. And mm -hmm. so, it was a little bit of, you know, maybe I can do really well if this company does really well. And uh, looking back, thank God I didn't leave because the company didn't last. Right. It lasted for like a year and a half. Oh, man. A, so, lot of, um, a lot of people made that mistake, didn't they? Yeah. So, and, and I almost did as well. Um, but I, I didn't, you know, to me, you know, to me, everything's about people. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I, while I, I thought I liked the company's prospects and so forth. I had a bit of a question around the CEO. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, that at the end of the day made me decide not to take it. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that was probably an issue. Right. What is it about the EY culture that you love so much that, you know, allowed you to and made you want to spend 35 years plus at this place? Yeah. So that's a good question. So you're, I think you're going to like this answer because I would say um, the EY culture and in particular, the group that I was in. Um, and I'd like to say I, I kind of helped make this culture sure. what it is. And that was the financial services group that I eventually ended up leading. We had a great culture of work hard, play hard. Mm -hmm. um, and it's yeah. a little bit of, I, I always viewed Colgate a bit of that culture. Right. Uh, when we were there, where I think, you know, kids worked hard. It was not an easy school. And it's not an easy school today. Uh, it's a very hard school. I have two kids, one who's still there, one who graduated. Colgate prides itself um, on being super hard academically. You know, when I is. when I learned about these other schools where people sail through like 4.3s, I didn't even know that you could get above a 4.0, by the way. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, yeah. what? Up? What's up? Colgate, like they just literally crushed us academically. I mean, I, yeah. I eked out with a whopping like 2.85. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm surprised the Coopers hired me, but <laughs> it must have been my good yeah, looks. <laughs> it was. It was. I, know, I was a little high on that, but not much. So it was, uh, no, but, but, but it's, um, but we, I mean, you know, we really uh, have a culture and had a culture in, in our group in financial services uh, of, of exactly that. We worked hard. We worked incredibly hard. We did incredibly well, but we also had a good time together. Mm -hmm. Um, and not only the partners, but the managers, we were, you know, we're just one good group and we always viewed it as a family. Mm -hmm. Uh, and to this day, that culture permeates EY mm -hmm. in totality, but it's probably stronger in that group. And it's obviously a very big group now, but, um, yeah. but it's probably even stronger in that group. And that's, you know, I like that culture. Yeah. You know, bottom line is I like that culture. Uh, and that's, you know, that's a mistake. Right. You know, in the, in the military, um, you know, when I was a lieutenant, leadership was one thing. And then when I became a, you know, a commander, it was a whole different thing. And then, you know, if had I stayed and gone up and, you know, into like the SOCOM level, leadership would have been a completely different thing. So I'd love to hear your perspectives on the different faces of leadership as it pertains to like different career milestones or leading different size units in your industry or your, your company. Cause I think that's really interesting to me because leadership is yeah. not one size fits all. There really are many, many different facets to it. Yeah. And, and you know, Mark, I, I think leadership today um, in particular being a CEO today is, 
completely different than what it was, let's say, 20 years ago. Yeah, I agree. Completely different. Right. Um, you know, and, and I would say, uh, well, before I get to that, you know, the way I view kind of your career trajectory at EY is you start out broad and you start out wanting to learn everything you could possibly learn. Um, you start out learning not only EY, but different industries. You learn, you know, uh, different functions. You learn, you know, how to operate in business in general. Mm -hmm. As your career then goes along, and let's say you become a manager, you do want to develop a more specialized skill. And whether that's, you know, whether that's auditing or whether that's consulting and, you know, or learning about the cloud and, 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 you know, and a lot of different technologies, but you do want to learn a more specialized skill. And then I would say uh, beyond that, and I would say that would be the midpoints of your career, you know, let's call it five years out of school to 15. Mm -hmm. And then from there, then you want to really uh, come back to being broad. You Mm -hmm. want to be a partner in, in the firm, Mm -hmm. understanding broadly what's going on in the business world, uh, understanding how to sell services to clients. And, and so that's the way I I view the the trajectory. Mm -hmm. Um, but if we talk more purely about leadership, overall leadership and, and being a CEO today, you know, it's completely different because we, have to be so accountable to all our stakeholders, mm-hmm. uh, not just if you're a corporate, not just shareholders. And, mm-hmm. and that's true even for us. I mean, I'm accountable to our partners, mm-hmm. but I'm also accountable to our employees. Mm-hmm. I'm accountable around the brand of, of the firm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm accountable to our clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I'm, I feel like I'm accountable to society in mm-hmm. some way. So that's that's very different than 20 years ago. That is true, yeah, and, and it's—I wouldn't say it's controversial, but you know, not everyone buys into that. But certainly, I believe that in that multi-stakeholder accountability for, especially for you know, a, a company like EY that has a global impact. And so, um, I'm kind of curious, like, how do we measure that? Like, it's easy to measure your impact on the bottom line and gross margin and share price or partner value. How do, how do we measure the impact on, you know, the stakeholder like the environment or sustainability or, you know, so what kind of metrics do you guys put in place and how do you, where are we going with all this is my kind of broader question. So I, uh, so on this, I could spend the next five hours. You've probably had a lot of conversations what, the last year. What this, we've right? been doing. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, I actually, I actually also just, um, I just did an op-ed on exactly this topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in Fortune magazine. Mm-hmm. I'll send it to you. Yeah, I'd love um, to see that. And it's, um, but we, we uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, we at EY, as well as the other big four, working with Bank of America uh, and the World Economic Forum, the, actually the International Business Council of the World Economic Forum, which is headed by Brian Moynihan, the mm-hmm. CEO of Bank of America. Okay. We took on a project of distilling all these metrics that are out there by all these different organizations like SASB, GRI, IIRC, it's the, we call it the alphabet soup of organizations around metrics and uh, distilled them into 21 ESG core metrics that we think companies should disclose year over year. What's ESG? And Sorry. What's ESG? What's environment, society, and governance. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, so the environment, meaning sustainability and mm-hmm. so forth, society, which which a lot of that is around people, mm-hmm. um, and then and then governance. Got it. And so these metrics, we actually divided them to four four uh, groups or grouped them into four, um, and it's planet, people, prosperity, and principles of governance. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. And so. Each one of those categories has about four or five metrics that you would disclose. So for the environment, for example, you would disclose, you know, your emissions, your carbon emissions. It would be one metric. Mm-hmm. Water usage would be another metric. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for people, you would disclose, you know, how diverse is your is your leadership team? How diverse is your board? You know, and, mm-hmm. and so things like that. 
And, and so are you we comparing actually, this to a standard as well, or just kind of reporting on your? That's, you know, you truly are an accountant at heart. So. <laughs> Thank you very much. That warms my heart. Well, yeah. <laughs> I know. So, uh, so no, so we, um, so we put these out and uh, we then have gotten 76 companies of the largest companies in the world to commit to this disclosure. Oh, cool. It's all voluntary. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we told them that, uh, you know, the concept here is you disclose or you're, you explain. So, for example, we're doing this for EY. Mm-hmm. On water usage, it's not really what we do. I'm not going to go counting how much, many glasses of water you drink or whatever. Right. So, so that we're just going to explain that it's really not relevant to what we're trying to do. Okay. So, so, um, so we have 76 companies committed to do this starting this, you know, reporting season starting in calendar 21. And, um, and we're hoping to get more. We've been, uh, ab- you know, we've been talking a lot about these, including on CNBC and things like that. Brian Moynihan has been talking a lot about it and all the big four. Have. Mm-hmm. And so this was our start to really get the conversation going on how do you measure things like that. This is a way to measure, a way to look at metrics. And we're hoping that the actual standard setters and regulators would take this as the building blocks right. for whatever they're going to do. Right. And, um, and we know we're not there yet. And obviously today there's divided regulators. There's the IFRS, which is mostly European, and there's US GAAP, which is the SEC in the US. We're hoping that on these metrics, we can have a global standard around them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're hoping that they're broad across these different categories. Mm-hmm. What's happening more recently is everyone's really focused on climate and sustainability, right. but maybe not focused on the other pieces of this. Right. Um, and they and all so, kind of interlock, as you know, right? So, yeah. Yeah, you know, I know you, they no, do. And you've got, but three. that's what we're doing. Right. That's interesting. A couple of thoughts come to mind. One is it seems like it would have to be industry specific. So like, for instance, let's say I know one of the metrics uh, for you guys is um, net, net zero carbon impact, right? It's a lot easier for a service company like ENY to commit to something like that than it is for Shell Oil, let's just say, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm just curious, how do we, you know, how do we kind of make this relevant across all these disparate industries where you're going to have like, it's really hard for someone like a industrial concern to get to net zero carbon uh, in any yeah. kind of normal time frame anyways, or short time. Yeah. So, so the way the metrics are set up, I totally agree with you. Um, these are, these are not industry specific. There are other metrics that get to industry specific, right? These are more broad, right? But then, you know, when you're evaluating um, and it's not, it's not, you know, net zero, like, you know, we do em- emit carbon, you know, mm-hmm. and, and maybe, uh, you know, we'll disclose a net zero number, but, and Shell will disclose a huge number, but the idea is comparing it from year over year. And are you making progress year over year? Oh, that makes sense. It's yeah. not a one time, oh, and that person's better than the other person, because obviously that's going to be, you know, Shell's not going to be evaluated against EY. Right. It's going to be evaluated against British Petroleum, Saudi Aramco, uh, right. and so forth. So, so I think we wanted to make sure that the beginning building blocks were broad, right. um, similar to accounting standards back, you know, in whatever, the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Um, they started broad. And then eventually they got more specific. So aside from, I'll ask the whole question again, aside from the obviously doing these things because they're the right thing to do, is there evidence that it actually has a positive effect on shareholder value, partner value, return on investment as well? There is, there, there's a lot of evidence. And in fact, I'm part of a, uh, of an organization that's, that's the acronym is FCLT. It's called mm-hmm. Focus Capital for the Long Term. Mm-hmm. They've done a lot of research around this uh, in terms of stock price and how companies do better when they're focused on the long term mm-hmm. uh, and when they're focused around all these categories. And, and the evidence is overwhelming um, in terms of how well companies do in the long term. Now, if you you know if you look at stock price one day, you know in a day that. You know, that's right. not necessarily true. Right. But if you look at it over the long term, the evidence is there. That's interesting. Let's yeah. get specific about leading in your, your specific culture of EY. How are you handling um, diversity and inclusion? Like, what, How do you build a culture that's going to be uh, resilient for the future, specifically also coming through what we've just experienced with the pandemic and 
changes in, you know, patterns of work, like you're sitting in your bedroom upstairs. This is the new global headquarters for E&Y. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about that. Like, let's, how, do, how do we build a high-performing team or, or nurture a high-performing team while also, you know, pushing for neurodiversity and inclusion and racial equity and all these things that society is kind of demanding of a, of a corporate CEO? Yeah. Well, let me, let me start with diversity and inclusiveness. Um, you know, we, we've had a long history of just really being focused on diversity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really started 20 years ago uh, with some of our leaders back then who were really focused on it before others. And, uh, and we've continued that leadership in the entire area. So what do we do that's a little different? Uh, first of all, we have people who are very focused on our culture being inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, we have professors that we that we hire that, that are, we feel like they're part of our firm now uh, from different schools that are very focused in this area. We and over time we've developed different processes to help ourselves um, around diversity and inclusiveness. So I'll give you an example. We have a succession planning process. The top five hundred roles at EY globally go through this process. Mm-hmm. The process really entails uh, every role having a slate uh, of candidates that could take the role. Mm-hmm. So for your role or my role, we'd have a slate. The slate's between four and seven people uh, generally. And what? And we put this in place about seven years ago. And you might say, well, okay, what does that do? Well, what it does is it gives us visibility to the up-and-coming leaders that could potentially get that role, whatever that role is. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but then we implemented some rules. We said, okay, of the slate, two have to be women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we call it two in the pool. Mm. And so research has said that in, if you only have one as a woman, the chances of a woman getting selected for the role is almost negligible. Interesting. Once you have two the chances are astronomically higher. Why is that, and by so, the way? Do you know? It's, um, no, I don't. Th- so this is some of the research that's been done by, uh, by some of the professors. Um, right. You know, it's, uh, I, I guess it's, it's one of those statistics. weird psychological behavior things. Well, maybe. And it's, and it's probably statistics. I mean, it, you got to, you know, right. yeah. 100%, more, 100% more of a candidate pool, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But, um, but so what that's helped from a gender perspective, that has helped get us, you know, over time, uh, get us women in senior roles. Mm-hmm. And now, as we promote um, women, 30% of our new promotee partners are women. Awesome. 33% of our global board are women. Mm-hmm. But then you get into the other pieces of diversity, um, you know, in terms of just ethnicity and, and um, you know, and racial and everything else. So we haven't had those rules for for just diversity in terms of LGBT and so mm-hmm. forth. So now we are talking about putting, you know, and maybe each slate has to have not only the gender piece, but also has to have a piece around people of color mm-hmm. or sexual preference and so forth. Right. So these are all processes that you could put into your mm-hmm. organization mm-hmm. that would help. Um, but then we also, Mark, we also have groups, uh, we have task force around the world when the George Floyd situation happened, we created a global task force mm-hmm. around a- racial equity. Mm-hmm. And if I showed you the picture of the task force, and it's about 30 of our partners around the world, uh, and some are in leadership positions, some are you know, more line, line partners doing their job, but the picture is incredibly global. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's not just people of color, it's, it's, it's yeah. a broad group right. of people, but, and from different countries, but they all have worked together to figure out what else does EY need to do because mm-hmm. of the racial inequities that are going on out mm-hmm. there. Is there anything else we need to do? And they actually have created um, 10 recommendations. Um, a lot of them have to do with our processes that I mentioned right. before that, uh, that are going to our global board mm-hmm. uh, in May for approval. Mm-hmm. So being transparent on the subject, being open on the subject, mm-hmm. Um, has been incredibly, you know, valued. You know, honestly, that sounds like a really powerful model, you know, for others to follow, including, you know, including the governmental level. Because, you know, this issue gets so polarized because people won't get together and actually talk about it with the 
with the intention of perspective taking and making. And so I think this is like critically important for leaders is to learn the skill of being able to, to take someone else's perspective and to really understand where they're coming from and then to have a good, di- like an important probing dialogue about it. And then, to, you know, to, with transparency and humility, try to seek solutions that really satisfy all parties. And that, you know, yeah. some, some of that's a little compromised. Some of it is like solutions that come out of, out of that process that neither side has thought about, right? And Mark, what we've done, and you're going to laugh at this, but what we've done, because we've been at this for literally 20 years and we have some good processes, obviously we, what we've done now is we've created uh, these processes and so forth to help our clients. So we yeah. have a whole, a whole service uh, around our people advisory services business that's focused around helping our clients in terms of D&I. And right. in fact, our global uh, head of DNI, Karen Twanite, she's now spending half her time internally and half her time externally helping clients around this subject as well. Oh, that makes sense. You got to eat. We call it eating your own dog food. <laughs> your clients exactly. want to know that you're doing the doing the work on yeah, yourself first. That's right? Exactly right. <laughs> and how's that going? That's for That's exactly you? right. And that's that's become more and more prevalent actually, even in technologies that we use, you know, or or people we want to partner with. The first mm-hmm. question we get, we're trying to sell something to a client, is do you use it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, or you're eating your own dog food. That's yeah, exactly right. That's exactly right. Oh man. Um th- this subject is so interesting to me and, and people get seized up with what's going on in our culture right now. And you know, I know you and I share, I think, an optimism that is um probably not shared by a lot of other people. Like I when I look to the future and I see all the technological change that's happening and I see the growth of kind of human consciousness, which I think is what's, you know, this whole struggle that we're going through right now with kind of racial equity and inclusiveness really is awareness. People becoming more aware, more conscious, and some of that's driven by technology, but it's also, I think, driven by just the evolution of consciousness. You know, let's call it that from my perspective. So I'm very optimistic about the future. But then when you look at the news media and kind of the way this is being played out, it just seems the opposite. Like, Freaking disaster, you know what I mean? Politics is a gridlock nightmare. You have, we have super non-inclusive theories uh, that, you know, are being promoted around the world, or not around the world, especially in America, that are even threatening to like people like France, you know what I mean? They're saying, no, no, we're not gonna go there, right? What's happening in America? Like who would have thunk? H- how do you navigate above that noise and not get sucked into, you know, political positions like, I'll just say critical race theory or things that just may, may not be yeah. inclusive in, in and of themselves. Yeah. So, uh, so that's tough an excellent question. question. <laughs> so, so, and it's a tough one. And uh, to date, I would say up until the last year or a couple of years, I'll say we've done a good job at basically uh, navigating that and staying, you know, above either the above the fray or however you want to, yeah. you know, whatever words you want to use. I would say over the last year and a half to two years, it's become almost impossible. Um, yeah. And so, and so because you have the employees screaming one thing, you have your clients screaming one thing, and um, and I, I will tell you, I will tell you a situation that I was in the last couple of weeks um, that was a very difficult situation, and that is. Um, the voter rights issue. Oh, I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, because that was kind of my next thing is like, you have companies that are literally pulling out of Georgia and I'm thinking, well, that, like half the people are going to think you're great for doing that. The other half the people are not going to think you're great for doing it. So why would you do it? (laughs) Right, right, exactly. (laughs) So so on that, um, you know, and I've done research on this and so forth. So some of these laws you know, I think the Georgia law that the governor was, you know, put in place, you know, was just a flashpoint. And I think right. there are things in that law that I think created a flashpoint. And then there are things that, in my view, that are normal things, you know, showing an ID to vote, making sure that you're a legitimate vote. Right. I think everyone would agree with, right. you know, you know, the fact it, you can't have water on a line is, you know, it, to me was a flashpoint. Right. So, but that's just one example. I mean, it's so misunderstood. Mm-hmm. So the law that they would be putting into Georgia is actually less restrictive than the laws we have in New Jersey. Right. 
Right. New when Jersey I, when has I more research that, laws. So it's being used in a manipulative way. Yep. So my question then is why wouldn't, you know, let's just call out Delta. Why wouldn't the Delta CEO kind of do the research on this and say, you know what, this is, there's truth that's not being told here, right? Before just throwing out, you know, jumping on the sword or whatever you want to call it. It's curious to me. Yeah, I think what happens is I think people get caught up in the moment uh, and they, you know, and, and, and I think, I think Ed Bastion at Delta was trying to do the right thing, but I For think, sure. you know, looking back, um, you know, I haven't asked him this, but looking back, um, you know, it might be something where, where he probably wish he had done something different. I'm not sure, but, mm-hmm. but I will tell you the, um, this is a tough one because this one, you know, you're going to have, as you said, half the people think one thing, half the people think another, and it's not well understood. Right. Um, and so, you know, so we, we, for example, we were very much behind the statement that was made by the business roundtable, mm-hmm. which is all around fair and equitable elections, right. making sure that one person gets one vote and so forth. And then we also did sign um, Ken Frazier's and, uh, uh, well, his, his uh, statement that a lot of companies signed just around fairness. And the, and the United States has one of the most uh, aggressive transfer systems at the at the federal, state, local level. And when you account for all that, uh, income inequality is only like three or four times in this con- in this country. And so we're actually uh, we rank pretty high on income equality when you take into account all the transfer payments. And so I, in, that's, in that that's study, never really talked about much. Right when it, when this subject comes up, Mark, in that study, was it did it get, let's say, you know, how has that moved over the course of time over the last 30, 40 years? I think it's gotten, um, you know, I actually can't quote, but it hasn't changed that much. It's actually, I think it showed that income equality has actually gotten better. Um, but again, you you have to kind of parse out what we're actually talking about because the income inequality inequality of the top, you know, let's say one to five percent has grown massively, especially in the past year. But when it comes to the you know everybody else, the bottom nine percent, ninety five percent, it's actually um, gotten less because the tr- there's been more and more transfer payments going into the bottom, like twenty five to thirty percent. But the middle class, and this is one of the reasons that, you know, they've shown that Trump got elected, but the middle class has been dealing with declining purchasing power and an increasing tax base, you know, both from federal, state and all the, you know, the nickel and dime taxes and gas tax and then, you know, whatever. And so every, the middle has gotten squeezed. The yep. bottom is getting okay, is okay because, again, there are a lot of transfer payments. And, you know, I have people even in my family, not my family back in New York, but my, my wife's family who, you know, her father and her now her brother were living on the system and, and they're living actually fairly well, you know what I mean? Through transfer payments. And so it's, I think we do really well in this country with the welfare system and social security and, you know, food stamps and the million different ways. And once you learn how to tap into all that, but it's the middle class that got, has gotten kind of crushed. You know, the purchasing power of the yeah. dollar is like 90% less than it was when we were, you know, running around campus at Colgate. It's crazy, yeah. right? Yeah, I think, you know, um, I, I do, th- well, I haven't read the study that you read in terms of the transfer payments. That That is interesting. I do think over some time, though, we have lost, we've certainly lost the middle class. So I couldn't yeah. agree more with that. Um, but I think companies, from a company perspective, um, you know, and, and this is actually my op-ed, but if, if you go back to the 50s and 60s, right? Mm-hmm. And you look at what companies did in the 50s and 60s. Companies created cities. They created the infrastructure. They created the schools. Interesting. They, they took care of all their employees. Right. They did everything that people talk about now around ESG and everything else. Right. And, and I mean, think about it, you know, uh, Flint, Michigan was created by General Motors. I mean, Eastman Kodak in Rochester, New York. I mean, uh, Coca-Cola in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, this is in this country, but it's true in Europe too. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Fiat in Torino, Italy. I mm-hmm. mean, there's, so, so at that point, things were booming and everyone was taken care of. And it was the companies that were, that were doing it. Right. Then 
uh, in the 70s, uh, Milton Friedman wrote this thesis that companies should only be focused on on making profit. Mm -hmm. And that did spur a change. And if you look at, you know, the 80s and even some of the 90s, every, you know, the corporate raiders came in and Mm -hmm. cost cutting, cost cutting, cost cutting. You had CEOs like Chainsaw Al and people like that. They were the big CEOs then, you know, people who could cost cut, cost cut. And, um, and everything changed, everything changed. And then, you know, over the course of the next then 20 years from that or so, you ended up with, with inequality mm-hmm. uh, because right. you ended up with, you know, people doing very menial service jobs and then more the, the elite. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that was a driver around, you know, the middle class, if you go back to the middle class, you know, a lot of the middle class back in the, you know, were, were workers, were workers right. in, in these companies that made a good wage and so forth. So that's why, you know, the minimum wage is always so controversial. Right. But um, but I do believe that that we did go down a path where there were people left out. Um, yeah. And yeah. I think we're we're trying to bring that back in now, um, right. you know, in terms of some of the things that are going on. And I think people have awoken to that, um, you know, in terms of doing better for all their employees, creating more jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the part where, some of the programs and the transfer payments, as you call them, uh, go counter to this. That's right. And I think some of this you've seen in the pandemic where, right. where you know, people haven't wanted to go back to work because they're getting checks for doing nothing. Right. Exactly. So, it's a blowback. Yeah. And that happens. So, I mean, that's been a. Yeah, I was going to say, sorry, sorry about that. We have a little time lag here, so I didn't mean to cut you off. But yeah, you see that with um, Social Security. Right. Or, you know, you can't really earn anything if you're on Social Security or else they take your Social Security away or if you're on welfare, you know. And so these these programs kind of end up creating uh, ceilings to these class levels. Right. And that's an unfortunate yeah. consequence of a good intention policy. Let's talk about that's something that's happening in um, in technology that you guys are all obviously involved in. But but blockchain both the decentralized blockchain and the Bitcoin cryptocurrency and how's that, you know, affects, you know, what's the discussion from your perspective at the WEF and whatnot. And then also the blockchain is a technology, you know, especially in the financial industry and others for taking out the middleman and how this could transform, you know, the landscape. What is your perspective? So, yeah, so we, um, we have a whole practice around blockchain uh, and, uh, advising clients around blockchain, helping clients value uh, Bitcoin, but also really understanding the, the, the ledger uh, itself better. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you, you know, how do you create value from it? So um, number one, we're big fans of the public blockchain. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think that that's really where, the, where things are going. We think that's, you know, that's where we'd like for things to go. So we're big believers uh, around the technology. Uh, Bitcoin's a bit of a different story. (laughs) That's something that we haven't really gotten involved in. Uh, We are involved in, in terms of our clients Mm -hmm. uh, and even in terms of audits Mm -hmm. around our clients. Um, You know, and today it's a little bit easier, but, but (laughs) going back a few years, you know, we literally would have people looking for the token, you know, looking at (laughs) the token. Um, (laughs) Right. And, and you know, and we had clients where it'd be in, you know, like the CFO's safe, you know, <laughs> things like that. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. But um, so we are, you know, obviously we're, we have to prove that it exists and we have to uh, obviously prove the value um, that we've been doing. But, but um, so I'm curious how you, you know, do that. You, they have to give you the wallet keys or the auditor, the wallet keys, yeah. and they have to yes. verify that the Bitcoin or whatever's in there. Correct. Correct. That's fascinating. There are, and there are some. That seems kind of that seems kind of risky, right? Is anyone who has access yes. to the to the private wallet key has access to the Bitcoin, yeah. basically? Yes, but you know, I mean, we do get access like that in physical. That's true. Yeah, situations you trust your, as well. Trust people, yeah. yeah, exactly. What do you think? But it's, what do you uh, think there are about, some interesting companies. I'm oh, sorry. No good. <laughs> no, I was going to say there's some interesting companies out there. We have a delay. Um, that that are um, that are, there's a company called Circle. Yeah, it's a I'm private aware, company now. That them, yeah. you you do know. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's a uh, yeah. that's an interesting. I mean, they they think that they will be, uh, you know, that they will be a crypto 
financial services company, right. but their whole ideas around coin and and the, the actual Coinbase being based on a particular currency, so U.S. dollar. Right, um, right, yeah. And so I do think you're, you're going to get more of that. Um, sure. Where, com- where countries will develop cryptocurrencies, right. it'll have nothing to do with Bitcoin. It'll right. be based on their yeah, currency. Ch- China's already developed their digital yuan, and I know the central banks right. around the world are looking at CBDs, central bank digital currencies and whatnot. And it is fascinating, and I think the conversation is just beginning. And... Um, you know, you'll see probably more companies like Tesla, you know, putting some of their treasury or MicroStrategy is putting some of their treasury in Bitcoin. It, you know, because there's only like the there's only so long before the inflation starts to tick up, you know, with the money printing that's been going on. Right. I think it's hubris to think anything else. So you 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 view Bitcoin as an anti-inflation hedge? I do. Yeah, I'll publicly state that. I think it's a, it's actually a good one. It shouldn't be the only one. But right. um, gold's another good one, and, and obviously there's other strategies too. But Bitcoin's, I think, past the Rubicon line in terms of its um, durability. It's it's going to stick around, and I think it's also past the line in terms of any government. I mean, some governments around the world are starting to like try to outlaw it, like what's happening in India, India, and um, um, I don't know. But how do you think, Mark? How do you think if if every country develops its own digital currency? Where does that leave Bitcoin? I don't think Bitcoin is ever really going to be used as a currency, Carmen. I don't think it's good for transactions. It's too slow. It's too expensive. There's too much energy used. I truly think it's strictly a store of value. It's digital gold, basically. Okay. Got yeah. It. That's, it's, that's, and that's why you know Elon Musk has you know put a billion and a half into it. Just one place to put it that's not the U.S. dollar, because you know they're looking out in ten years. U.S. dollar might be down here and Bitcoin might be up here. It just makes good sense, you know, to... So if you view Bitcoin that way, you must view NFTs that way also. I'm not, I'm not a big, not certain about NFTs. I think that's a huge bubble, right? I don't think Bitcoin <laughs> per se is a bubble, although it goes through those boom and bust. And to understand NFTs, you have to like really be a futurist and to really believe. And, and I, I don't disbelieve this. I just, you and I are like old school I'm not the kind of person who's going to put a virtual headset on and go to a virtual art show in decent land, right? I'm like, oh, no, I kind of prefer this physical reality, you know what I mean? So, but I, I read this the other day that people are spending a half a million dollars for real estate in these virtual worlds, just like they're spending millions of dollars on virtual art. And someday they're going to have a virtual showroom in the virtual world to show their virtual art. Yeah. <laughs> It's a strange That's world true. we live in, my friend. That's true. <laughs> that is true. And EY sure is going to be virtual, have virtual auditors in there auditing this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be beyond my time for sure. <laughs> how long? Oh, we got to wrap up soon. But how long is a like is a CEO tour, so to speak? You know what I mean? Like in the in the military, we always knew that. Hey, we're in this job for eighteen months or two and a half years. What does it look like for you? What's your longevity then? Um, well, we have we have particular terms. Uh, so I have a four year term uh, as CEO, and I guess it could go beyond that. But uh, but we have set terms. But I think your typical CEO out there, this varies. But I think they, you know, they. they I think I read somewhere it's about five or six years people would last as CEOs. Okay. Um, and what happens so, next for you? Or do you they put you out to pasture with a watch? Or do you stick around? Yeah, pretty much. I'll be <laughs> hanging around with you. All right. <laughs> look okay. no. Hey, we're, no, uh, I'm looking for no, a CEO, a, Carmen, by the way. So if you, if you want another job for a startup, come work with me. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, um, you know, it's kind of funny because obviously, you know, my predecessor, Mark Weinberg, I'm very good friends with. And so he's obviously retired. He's on three big boards and he's doing a lot of entrepreneurial things and right. investing. And so, like, he feels liberated. Um, Does he? he makes fun of me every every time. He feels liberated. He's not getting up at five a.m. on a Monday morning, and and he's having fun. Um, so there's there's life after this, um, right. and it's um, you know I'm not sure if I'm you know if I'm going to go on boards maybe, but uh, but I will get involved in some of the entrepreneurial aspects in terms of some of the startup companies and so forth. I have a, a passion for that, and I have a lot of friends in that as well. Yeah, I love That'll that too. What, what in particular are you interested in in the entrepreneurial space? Like, what if you could start a business today or you know in an industry? What would you do? 
Um, well, I think what I would be more interested in is around tech mm-hmm. um, and, and some of the emerging tech um, and the intersection of tech with consumers um, and, and, uh, and, and with corporates, I would say. So, you know, um, you know, I think I, I would have value because obviously I understand a lot of companies out there and so forth. Mm-hmm. And also, um, you know, I, I would, um, I do understand a good amount about technology as well. So it, it would be, uh, it would be interesting. Um, well, in a startup you know, in, be, in, a, in a sense is it's different, but there's got some of the same drivers as an EY and it's the people that are the yep. most important. And you're, you're an excellent people person in terms of your ability to motivate and, and to understand. And, to, you know, um, I think that's one, one of your real talents. Like I said, I saw that. I mean, I've known you for a long time, but you've just been a very, you're a very graceful man. And, you know, you, you really lead with your heart. I don't, it must be your Italian heritage, right? You're just a really, really, <laughs> you're very happy and very loving human being. It's so true. I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> And I think no, that's, thank you for that's that. the most important aspect of leadership is your character, right? And I, I try yeah. to teach that. I try to teach people to get into their heart. It's, it's hard to teach someone who's been locked in their head their entire life to get yeah. into their heart. But, yeah. Thank you. That means a lot to me coming from you, Mark. It's, uh, it's just amazing. If you think of the time we spent when we were, I guess, 20, 19, 20 years old, right. uh, where we are today, it's, uh, it's been a long journey, but generally a good journey. Uh, right. We've had different journeys. That's um, true. Yours is probably more exciting than mine, but uh, but it's great to be here and just talking about it. And That's it's, blast, um, it's it's one of the things that uh, you know, going back to our school, uh, one of the greatest things about our school is the fact that people make lifetime friends there, uh, right. and that's exactly what we are. Yeah, that's one of the benefits of a great liberal arts education, I think. And- I thank you for wearing the seal fit shirt, flying the colors. There. Yeah, yeah, I got the, I got the, the medium <laughs> seal fit shirt. It's You're looking burly tight. there, Carm. You're looking burly. <laughs> uh, thanks so no, much for your time. Good. Yeah, thanks so much thanks, for your time. Thanks, Mark. Though. Yeah, it's been awesome. It's great spending time with you. Thank you. Likewise. And I tell your team, uh, thanks for letting you, uh, you know, thanks for letting Dude, me lose for the hour. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. <laughs> That's fine. They might have to edit. Do you edit this? <laughs> I don't think we had any F-bombs or anything like that. But if they, if you need anything edited out, let me know. <laughs> All right. Do it. All right. All right, All right. It's good to see you, my friend. Good seeing you. You take care. Ooh, yeah. I'll see you. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. Oh, yeah. Bye. All right, folks. That's it. That was my good friend, Carmen DeCibio, Chief Executive Officer of EY, Global Fortune 500 company. What a neat guy. Um, thanks for listening. Hope you found that interesting and valuable. And um, stay focused and be unbeatable and be authentic. Lead from the heart. We'll see you next time. This is Mark Devine with Unbeatable Mind. Ooh, yeah.